This morning, we're going to close out our series on Samson. And we're not going to be talking about Samson as much this morning as we're going to be talking about you. Um, uh, but I want you to hear uh, from my heart this morning as, as we're kind of winding down this, this, this series, I, I want you to hear a couple things from me. Again, as, as we kind of talked about this, Samson was a judge that did some cool stuff under the anointing of God, but I think most of us would look at his life and be like, there was more than one opportunity missed. Right When you talk about the amazing things that God used him to do, but all the compromise he made along his life and along the way, there were probably things that, that, that he could do. Like we talked about, he, he had something like this, a donkey jawbone, right? And he killed a thousand guys with this, a thousand men in an army with a bone, right? Like I get it, this is kind of a formidable looking bone, but when you start swinging bone at metal, what wins? Metal. Every time. Right? Every time. Ask my tooth about that. I'll tell you a story later. Um, bone met pole, pole won. Okay? Um, uh, like, it's, it's just what happens. It, it's, it, but God used him miraculously to, to, to deliver partially his people um, in this. And, and, and just miraculous. But then immediately after that, Samson doesn't give thanks to God. He gives thanks to his own greatness, right? He brags. He sings a song about how awesome he is, right? He doesn't look to God. And then he gets thirsty. And then he finally is like, oh, God, I, I just did this amazing thing. And now I'm going to die of thirst. And God gives him water. And then we see these moral failures after moral failures that Samson had over and over and compromise and compromise. And it's not until the very end of his life where he finally seeks God with his whole heart. And he's able to accomplish the greatest military feat that he accomplishes in his entire life after he was broken and ready to die. I want you to hear this morning Whatever we're passionate about, we will run to. Samson, in this story, appears very passionate about prostitutes. Read the story. We talked about it the last two weeks. He seems really passionate about spending time with prostitutes. So what did he do? He spent time with prostitutes. And it's not until the end of his life when he finally really wants to pursue God. And he turns it around. And that's the hope. That's the hope of being a Christian is that I don't have to have it figured out my whole life. It's the hope that I don't have to never make a mistake and then, then God can never use me again if I do make one. The hope is that the, the power of Jesus is enough to be with us in the midst of our failures, not that we have to pretend to live this perfect life for God to use us. But whatever we're passionate about, we will run after. How do we know what we're passionate about? Ask the people in your life. I think that most people who follow God say he's my first priority. But I think the way we spend our time and money often contradict that. This is not in relationship to a fundraiser that we're going to be doing. <laughs> I've said it before. It wasn't new with me. You'll hear me say it again. If you want to know what's important to you, 
check out your calendar and check out your checkbook or your electronic banking because no one uses a checkbook anymore. Not no one. Four of you probably still do. Show me what you spend your time on. Show me what you spend your money on and I'll show you what you're actually passionate about. Because if you're really passionate about it, you give it time and money, right? Right? I know that the love hasn't faded in any of our marriages and we all just as passionately pursue our spouses 50 years later as we did the first day we met them. But I want you to think back to the very beginning. And I want you to think about how much time, energy, and money you were willing to invest in that relationship at the beginning. It's exactly the same today, right? Yeah. We followed the passion. We invested in the passion. Men, you probably did things you haven't done since your second date. You dressed up. Maybe you went dancing. You're like, never again. Never again. Ladies, you pretended to like football. Maybe, maybe some of you really like dancing and some of you really like football. I'm just saying we, we, we invest in things we're passionate about, right? What's your favorite hobby right now? That's expensive. Cows. Listen, if your hobby is cows, you don't get to invest in anything else. Right? You don't get to go on vacation. You don't get, because you've got to take care of the cows every day. I'm the son or the grandson of a farmer rancher. I get it. My grandpa went on like three vacations in 50 years. Because that was his thing. Think about it. If you're, what, what are you passionate about? My youngest daughter right now is really into these like, felt things that she makes, right? It's like, I don't even, she buys colored felt and I don't even know what the, the right kind of thread is called. What is it called? I don't, um, but she, it's this colored thread and she makes little foxes and she makes little jellyfish and she does all this stuff. And my youngest daughter, if you know a 10 year old, you know that expendable income is not something that they just have laying around. Maybe yours do. Ours have to earn money. Um, and it's not something that she, she gets a lot of, but every penny that she's had for like the last, since Christmas has gone to buying felt and batting and colored thread because she loves making them. She spends time and money. There's like 70 of them in our house now. And if you've got a kid her age, there's probably some in your house too. What's your hobby? Some of you have invested like, $30,000 per walleye you're going to catch this summer. Because it's your hobby. It's the most expensive fish in the world, but it's worth it to you because it helps breathe life into you and you feel regenerated and you do those, right? Like, I'm not, please understand, I'm not making fun of you. I'm saying if it's your passion, you invest time and money in it, right? Right? What do you do? What's your hobby? Right? Like, what are you passionate about? It matters. Samson put his passions towards wrong things for most of his life. 
and it led to nothing but trouble. Nothing but trouble. What do you love to do? What is your attention on? We are going to go through a ton of verses in the Bible right now. So if you want to get your Bible out and get ready, crack some knuckles, stretch your fingers, we're going to start flipping through it. Okay. Um, if you've got an electronic version, um, you, it's going to be fast for you. If you've got a paper version, get ready. Okay. Maybe you can't find things super quick, and I'm not going to linger on these for a long time. So you might want to write them down so you can look them up later and make sure I'm not reading fallacy to you. Okay. Um, but here, I'm just going to read a couple of verses that talk about this. Right. Psalm 119, verse 131. It's one of the longest. It is the longest single chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119, 131 says, I pant with expectation, longing for your commands. The writer of this is talking about God. I pant with expectation, longing for your commands. Psalm 42.1 says, For the choir director, a psalm of the descendants of Korah, as the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. Have any of you, I know we live in a pretty wet area here. Um, I grew up in eastern Montana, which is like a quarter of an inch rain on average short of being considered a desert, okay? It's, it's in the badlands. I have seen deer longing for water. Right, Like I have been out hunting and seen them, you know, trying to evade a pack of coyotes or those kind of things and just seen them like huffing, breathing as hard as they possibly can. And literally you watch that gross tongue of a deer hanging out the side of its mouth as it is looking for the closest water it can possibly get to. Okay. I don't know if you have any of you have seen that around here because there's pretty much water everywhere except last summer. Um, uh, but, but like like a deer longing for water. Some of you remember that song from the 80s, right? As the deer. Yeah. And it's this pretty melodic song about this terrible thing. (laughs) So my soul longs after you. Can I just ask a question? And I have to ask myself this. Like, this was a hard one to get to, to preach, because I didn't do awesome as I ask all these questions. When's the last time you longed for God? Like a deer that was almost ready to die from thirst is longing for water. When was the last time that your passion and purpose was so tied to God that you longed for him like that? Most of us, that's probably ebbs and flows. There's probably days where we did fantastic, and there's probably days where we didn't. What do we long for? Isaiah 26, 9. Actually, let's just, we'll pop to some Psalms, and then we'll go to Isaiah again. Psalm 73, 25. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Are we so satisfied with God that we desire nothing else here? I struggled answering that question. Psalm 42, 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When do we appear before God? When we die and go stand in front of him 
I'm not saying this person is longing for death. This is not a suicidal psalm. But when is the last time we've longed to be in God's presence so much that being dead and in his presence seemed better than doing what we do here? Again, if you are struggling with thoughts of suicide and depression, talk to somebody that can help. That is not what this psalm is about. It's talking about a longing to be in God's presence. Do we long to be in God's presence? Isaiah 26, 9. Isaiah 26, 9. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants, in the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. This person is so longing for God. Isaiah was a prophet in a time of a lot of trouble. And Isaiah sought God day and night, even though he meant that at times that would mean he would face the judgment of God. But he knew that the judgment of God was going to bring about better things for his life and his people. So even longing for God's judgment... That's the kind of longing I don't know if I've ever experienced. The longing for God. I'm married to a person that can't sleep, except when it's light outside. Um, and at night, so many times, her mind wanders. And many days, it wanders down roads where she says the next day, she's like, I didn't want my mind to wander down that road. And he's saying at night, my mind is just filled with you. This is not a criticism of my wife. I'm just saying many times at night, it's hard for us to corral our thoughts onto good things, especially for those of you who struggle with sleep. I don't. I only half joke that sleep is my spiritual gift. Um, I, I probably average between five and 15 seconds of like good night, head on the pillow and being out cold for the rest of the night. Like I don't understand what it's like to lay there very often. I mean, it has happened to me maybe 10 times in my adult life where I lay there and just have to think about things. Can I tell you my secret to falling asleep? You ready for it? It's life-changing. If I'm struggling to fall asleep, I put my head on my pillow and I tell myself, Stop thinking about things. And then I take that really good advice and I go to sleep. <laughs> I told you, I only half joke that it's a spiritual gift. It's literally what I tell myself. Stop thinking about things. And then I do. And I go to sleep. I, please, if you struggle, don't come punch me afterwards. I get it. I'm married to someone who can't do that. What would you say? You'll take, Mandy will take care of it for you. You can just go to Mandy and be like, how dare he? You just, 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 just let her know. I understand. Not necessarily personally. It's happened to me a few times where it's just hard to turn it off and your, your mind wanders, but it's not very often for me. But I get it. Night can be a tough time. And at night, his mind is full of the things of God. Longing for God. It's a hard thing. Amos 8.11 
Amos 8.11 says, Behold, days are coming. Maybe I should give you a little longer. Amos is harder to find. That's one of the minor prophets. It's in the back. Unless you read the Bible through every year, you probably haven't been in Amos in a long time. Amos 8.11. It's, in, it's, in it's right before the New Testament, not the very last book, but it's right there um, in the back of those minor prophets, right before you get to the New Testament. Amos 8.11 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. When have you sought the word of God like a person dying of hunger seeks for food? What do we long for? What do we long for? John 6.35. Just turn a little bit more to the back. Now we're getting into familiar territory, right? John 6.35. Jesus answers a lot of these questions and he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who comes to me will never thirst. Jesus is not saying that in a literal sense. If you follow Jesus, you will still get hungry and you will still get thirsty. Some of you are already hunger are, are already hungry because we're getting close to the end of church and the timer in your body just knows it's about lunchtime. But Jesus is saying, if you come to me, I will satisfy the deep needs within inside of you. If you come to me, if you seek me, I will satisfy those needs. I am the answer to the things you've been looking for. Do we seek Jesus with that kind of passion? Do we seek the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords like that? I want you to turn to Nehemiah. We're going to go back to the Old Testament for just a second. Nehemiah chapter 8. This is where we're going to end, actually. Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra, Nehemiah, it's right back there um, after the Kings and Chronicles, right in that little zone, Nehemiah. We're going to do something a little different this morning. If you are physically able, I would like for you to stand with me. If you're physically able, stand up. Ready? I get it. Some of you can't do it. It's fine. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. The Israelites have just come back from captivity, okay? Um, that Babylon came and cap captured the cities. Um, they were just, they were completely ransacked. People were led off into slavery. That's where the things like Daniel happened. All of those things were just coming out of that time. That's about 70 years between when they were conquered and now they're coming back in. For 70 years, the nation of Israel has not had the word of God. For 70 years, they've been separated from the temple. And as a matter of fact, the temple has been completely ransacked um, by this point in time, even when they come back. For 70 years, they've been in captivity in another country. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. In October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. 
He faced the square just inside the water gate from the early morning until noon. He read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Massasiah. To his left stood Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashabadah, I can't even say that one, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of the people. When they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. Verse 6, then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatha, uh, Hadiah, Massasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interrupt or interpreting, not interrupting, uh, for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites too quieted the people telling them, hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal to share gifts of food and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's words and understood them. Most of you are probably wondering why I made you stand up for so long. It's been a little over a minute. Did you hear what just happened? They were so desperate for the word of God that they were out there from the early morning, which usually means about sunrise, if you read the Bible, to around noon, standing in the heat of the Middle Eastern sun, longing for the word of God. You can sit. They hadn't had it in a generation. For a generation, they hadn't been able to hear the direct words. All they'd been able to hear was what their parents taught them. And if you pay attention at all to scripture, the reason that they went into captivity was because most of their parents had so abandoned the ways of God that they didn't even know what they were. So imagine somebody trying to teach you math who never knew math, but is going to explain to you math. That's how they were being taught about their faith people who didn't really understand their faith, who didn't really know their faith, who had so abandoned their faith that God, after generations of that, finally said, okay, you can have what you want. You can be captured and I'll remove my protection. They haven't heard the word of God for a generation. And it's so convicting to them when they hear the word of God because they were taught poorly by people who understood poorly and were living amongst a bunch of people who lived their lives in a completely different way. Then when they finally heard the word of God, which they were so excited about, there was so much conviction that all they could feel was sorrow because they knew how bad they had screwed up. I can relate to that. I can relate to messing up having to come back to God and being like, 
Here we go. And you know what has never happened to me? In those moments, God has never looked at me and been like, what a disappointment you are. Instead, it's more of a welcome home. And I want you to hear this morning. Samson was passionate. And he found things. Many things that would have been better for him not to find. And I don't want to sit here and try and pretend like you need to be a monk, right? And you need to like shave your head and take a vow of silence and do nothing but sit in church and hum and chant you know, for the whole rest of your life. Listen, that kind of faith, how does that help anybody that doesn't know Jesus yet? We're going to be passionate about other things in life. That's fine. I love nerd stuff. I love it. I have a 3D printer in my office and at home. I 3D print nerd culture junk all the time. I have a computer graveyard in the other building of old computers that I don't have room for anymore. So they just sit in a room over there taking up space because I like old computers. And for some reason, I don't want to throw away my first computer I ever had. I love to hunt, spend a lot of time on archery, not so much the last few years because instead I've had to spend a lot of time working on my home. So if you come into my tool room, you will see the, the results of that. I don't do things halfway. If you know me, if I get excited about something, I'm all in or I'm not in. I don't have halfway hobbies. That makes no sense to me. What's your hobby? It's okay to have hobbies. It's okay to have things that fill your soul. But do we long for God like this? When's the last time we have passionately pursued understanding of God the way we passionately pursue a YouTube video explaining the next step of our hobby. What do we long for? I, I want to tell you, like I said, as I was getting ready for this one, when I first Back in October, when I first laid this one out, I, I struggled whether or not I even wanted to preach this one. And throughout the week, as I've gone back to it and looked at it, I've had to answer the questions that I've asked you this morning. It hasn't always been a joy-filled time as I realized, man, I'm falling short there. But that's important. It's important to let the Bible and truth speak. And sometimes with the best intentions in the world, our priorities just shift out of focus and away from God. And in those times, we need that reminder saying, it is okay to have hobbies and passions and pursue things that aren't only God. But if they supersede our passion and pursuit of Jesus, it becomes an idol. If what we are passionately pursuing takes the place of our passionate pursuit of God and it becomes more important to us 
than our passionate pursuit of God. Hear it today. Even though it might not be a bad thing in and of itself, it has become an idol in our lives and it needs to be killed. It needs to be adjusted. We need to bring God back into first place. Idolatry in the Bible isn't just kneeling before some wooden figure. Idolatry is defined in scripture as anything that becomes more important to us than God. I know that's not a word we use very often in America in 2023. I know it's not a word that I say often from this pulpit. It's probably not a word that's just popped into your mind. But it's the right word. It's 2024. (laughs) I'm good at math. It's still the right word. Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you don't always get the time and attention from me that you deserve. You did everything necessary for me to be made right with God. You made me from the beginning. You brought about healing. You brought about restoration. You brought about hope and health. And sometimes I still let you slide into the backseat of priorities. I'm sorry. And Jesus, I'm just going to bet I'm not alone in that. And I pray, God, for conviction where it needs to be. But just like Ezra and the Levites in this day, God, I pray that this day isn't marked by weeping and sorrow. God, that this day isn't marked by all of the negative emotions, but it is marked by joy at coming back into your presence. That it is marked by hope of putting you back where you belong in the priority list. That it is marked by excitement of knowing what we can accomplish when we are full of you instead of full of ourselves. Lead us. Guide us. Continue to speak to us. It is in your name I pray. Amen. If you need to spend some time with Jesus this morning, come and spend some time with Jesus. If you're good to go, Have a great Sunday.